Welcome to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, a special podcast from the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, where we talk to policymakers, experts, and academics about how the war in the Gaza Strip is unfolding and the prospects of a political endgame. I'm Nadine Shaker. It's been 53 days since Israel launched its war on the Gaza Strip. The war took 14,800 Palestinian lives and injured around 36,000. A four-day truce extended for two additional days saw multiple hostage swaps, with three Palestinians held in Israeli prisons released for every Israeli returned from Gaza. Now Gaza is at point zero, with its economy shattered, infrastructure leveled to the ground, and a massive humanitarian crisis to contend with. But what possible scenarios extend before it? And when the time comes to build Gaza and its economy from scratch, what lessons can be learned from the past and what political processes should not be repeated? I'm joined today by Raja Khaledi, economist and director general of the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute. Mr. Khaledi served with the UN Conference on Trade and Development from 1985 to 2013. This interview was recorded on Tuesday, November 28th. As a Palestinian living in Ramallah, you have a special but perhaps more painful vantage point than the rest of us. I'd like to get your you know, brief thoughts at this very moment. Well, some personal thoughts is uh, more along the lines of I've lived in living in Palestine now for 10 years. I lived the rest of my life and followed the wars that Palestine has lived through over my career, my lifetime, beginning in Beirut, the, the big one. And from afar, watching the destruction of Iraq on CNN and Jazeera and all that we've witnessed, the Intifada, etc. Uh, so I've been living here, however, for the last 10 years. And I can assure you that even before this war, what I realized, even living as a well-off, you know, middle-class professional in the best city you can live in in Palestine in some ways, and I I always used to say the safest, you know, whenever there was a war, the safest place in the whole Middle East is Ramallah. This is the last place that anybody wants to see going up in flames. Um, And even during this war, you know, we didn't have any rockets at least. Anyhow, uh, my point is that you realize that whoever you are uh, as a Palestinian anywhere, living in the West Bank, obviously in Gaza before the war, Jerusalem, uh, inside Israel, we're all <clears throat> traumatized already. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that we were all occupied, uh, but we had different ways of uh, uh accommodating to that and there were status quos different status quos in all those areas that i mentioned or at least premised on different things and all of those now have been blown to bits all of those assumptions uh everybody is still traumatized and everybody is totally engaged so like you say the pain is you know i don't think i'm uh, any more pain than a Palestinian sitting in Chicago is by everything because we don't, it's not no, on any longer about being there. It's about seeing it and watching it and reading. And so anyhow, I mean, uh, it's, it's very difficult to continue a normal life. Hence, you know, we've been obviously thinking about what we know best, which is the economy. 
On the other hand, uh, today we had a, a researchers meeting, and before talking about our upcoming research, etc., we had a you know political analysis session because everybody has you know is thinking and wondering and worrying where this is going. So very few of us disagreed with the likelihood that this is going to continue, that it's going to get worse, that we haven't seen the worst of what Israel can do. Um, you know, the political horizon immediately is zero. On the other hand, uh, there's an increasing recognition of way overdue, of course, in the West, that there must be finally, we need a proper solution to this. Mm -hmm. We cannot, whatever happens on the ground. So that, you know, in some way encourages us, but it also frightens, you know, scares. It's very scary because we know how much opposition there is in Israel. Uh, to any accommodation with the Palestinians of any form, of any color, and, you know, citizen, not citizen, Gazan, not a West Banker, we're all totally equal. Whereas we know that that's, you know, we can see the differences in Israel. We can see the crazies, and we're living with them in the West Bank. uh, And we can see some voices of total sanity in these moments. So today is November 28th, and the major headline today is that the truce has been extended for two days in exchange for the release of 20 more hostages by Hamas. Do you think that the strategic goals of Hamas and Israel are shifting, coming closer together in some way? Do you think this type of truce can form the basis of a permanent ceasefire? I wish so, but no, I don't think it, I don't think it, I mean, maybe in the Hamas's strategic, original strategy for this war, that was the idea. Hmm. Um, but I think only because they assumed their outcomes would be totally different than what they were. Uh, now, you know, I'm not a military analyst, but I've followed as closely as any uh, intelligent citizen has. Uh, it's clear that they went way beyond what they expected. There is what happened, both the the, the killing, indiscriminate killing of, of civilians, as well as the uh, uh, extraordinary bounty, military bounty, in terms of prisoners and in terms of dead Israeli soldiers and all of that, were clearly way beyond what was in the battle plan. And they've dealt with it since. Uh, uh, not, I mean, they maybe had contingencies, but I don't think they had a contingency for this. That's my personal feeling. Nevertheless, they've been able to manage the crisis much, much better than anybody expected. So, in that sense, I think they are much closer, sticking much closer to their strategic strategic plan than the Israelis. A, because the Israelis didn't have a strategic plan. Well, they had one, but it's very clear that the, they ignored it. And they, I mean, there was the the major, this massive intelligence and political policy failure. Uh, as well as the time it's taken for them to come up with a coherent military strategy, which we understand is, you know, which what from what we understand is even more uh, vicious than the first 50 w- weeks could become. Uh, hence, I think their strategy is also being adapted as we go ahead. But I don't see I don't see the resistance's strategy adapting. I think this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted these sort of exchanges. They wanted these sort of effects in terms of who's come, being released, in terms of who, you know, their children, our children, their civilians, our civilians, all of that. Uh, they want it to be the address for uh, all of this, and they are. Um, so they've, and, and I think that's a lot of their strategy has already been over even achieved. Now we're in, a, in probably in, for both parties, I think, in, in a gray zone. So no, neither of them has a, has a plan for tomorrow mm-hmm. even. I mean, the the ceasefire, even this last extension could break down, you know, who knows? My my point is that, therefore, 
my 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 concern more is what is is how much Israel is going to make be able to mix between its military goals and the time it will take or how it's going to reconcile its military goals with the time it's going to take evidently to achieve them and therefore what is the weak point in the Palestinian position today in Gaza at least I think it's the humanitarian catastrophe and just as they weaponize the humanitarian assistance you know we might well see if the ceasefire breaks down you know we go back to 50 trucks a day I don't know or uh, uh, which will be even make the compound a, a disaster we're trying to basically all we're doing now is mitigating the scale of the disaster nobody's preventing one so my my fear is that if they're you know if they're told they have to not kill hundreds of civilians every day in order to achieve their military goals as they did in the first 50 days and not uh, in, uh, witness the massive destruction that we've been seeing there is you know in, uh, extraordinary in the north then the only way I would have thought they can squeeze the resistance is through the people, which is what they've been doing, of course. Two million uh, traumatized, uh, you know, necabatized uh, Palestinians is not, a, you know, it's not a, it's not any, it's not a good situation for anybody, including for Hamas. So basically, they they extend the suffering to buy more time to reach their military goal. If they, if as as the general assumption is, and they keep saying it's going to take months. And if one assumes that the international community will remain in the position that it is now, which is basically giving, allowing them to continue within certain more perhaps strict parameters, as the Americans are starting to say, uh, then yes, I would have thought the the weak point in our position will be the people suffering. Mm. I think the question on everyone's minds is like how far they can go and how worse can it get? Because you're right, you do talk about the humanitarian catastrophe and what we've seen is obviously horrendous, but it could be much worse. It could get much worse. And and so my next question is after this pause in the war, say when the truce ends, when they run out of hostages, you know, and all this is said and done, do you think we're going to witness a resumption of massive war and destruction like the first time around or before the truce? And is there anything politically to signal that there might be a you know, a different situation on the ground after that? Uh, there are too many unknowns. Of these. If, it, you know, if we take them at their face value, that yes, you, then within a few days, there will be no exchanges because the price that they're going to be asked to pay for soldiers is not one that they're willing to pay in wartime. Uh, and they're willing to sacrifice them if that. So that the whole hostage issue will reduce in pressure on the government, Israeli government internally, which has been an important factor in them not yet pursuing the campaign. Now, okay, it's hard to imagine how anybody would want to go back to war, hmm. including Hamas. You know, after that, well, you know, who wants to you know, see another fifty days? But apparently, the Israelis feel they have to do it. Now, if they feel they have to do it. Uh, and try to do it. Destruction, you know, the physical destruction is one thing. The, the, there's all sorts of levers that Israel is using, has been using. Uh, not military, I'm talking about just human destruction, physical destruction, which, you know, which keeps coming back in things that even Israelis have been saying from the beginning, but others are now saying about now North Gaza is no longer habitable. We said it at mass the very first week. We said, basically, as we didn't say in so many words as a war aim, but we said the, ult the inevitable uh, outcome of this will be making Gaza unhabitable. Now, for the moment, those 800,000 uh, people in the north, seven or eight, they say, um, 
are okay they're living there uh, is it habitable yes I mean they they'll probably end up finding some you know most of them shelter in the ones in the north because they're mm. stayed there most of them stay there because their houses haven't yet been destroyed but what else is <laughs> no electricity no water no 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 hospitals no schools no nothing no stores are the best you know you can have one can assume commerce could you know small commerce uh will will could resume will resume has already you know is to the extent possible were there goods coming and could resume so that extend that now uh, you know to to one month forward after another few weeks of terrible fighting in the south maybe not in the scale maybe more localized maybe more deliberate you know they have and, and don't forget they haven't finished in the north so you know we don't know are they going to go on two fronts at once or resume at two fronts at once so they're going to finish mopping up in the north that might take a few weeks and then go to the south I mean, there's, you know, we'll see. But the point is that can Israel, con you know, conduct normal warfare operations as it feels it needs to in the way it likes to in the South with, at, at the same time, truck convoys be having to, you know, or maybe we'll have daily pauses for the, you know, like we had for a couple of times, supposedly full ceasefire pauses for six hours a day so they can kill us in the night. I don't know. All sorts of options there. Uh, it's it's really tough to think about. Um, and in our email correspondence, you uh, mentioned your discomfort with using the word or the phrase day after, mm -hmm. which already uh, I think a lot of observers are using to talk about reconstruction, return to normalcy, which which is uh, unimaginable at this point. Um, but there is an idea that I think is tied to the economy here or to the economic aspect of this, which you bring up in your writings a lot, which is that there is no proper economic development without liberation sovereignty. And I wanted you to elaborate a little about your concern with this phrase day after and how freedom and liberation need to be prerequisites for post-conflict reconstruction. The reason uh, um, that I have a, I'm averse to that term, and I think not not the only one. I discovered a few other people when I, you know, I said take it out of a text. <laughs> Anyhow, um, because it's being used precisely in a certain context, and that context has been one of the day after Hamas is destroyed and Gaza is is you know no longer a security threat to Israel. What do we do with Gaza? So it's totally, obviously, um, robbing us of our agency, uh, both in terms of the outcome as, as well as the discussion. And to be honest, I think the real day after <laughs> was on October 7th, in the sense that uh, that was the day after 30 years of a uh, failed process, let's say. You're referring to the Oslo process, sorry. Yeah, of course, exactly. And the peace process, uh, if there was one. and. After the last peace actual effort was when was that 2014, I believe, Kerry. Since then, we've been living in the status quo, which is which we became more or less accustomed to and and expected indefinitely to continue, and didn't see anything on the horizon that might disrupt it, including from us in, and we in the West Bank, PA. I think uh, as much as Israel were surprised by what and Hamas had, had prepared for us all. Now, my point here is that, therefore, uh, 7th of October, as well as today, we're still in the day after, is my point. Uh, uh, if anything, it's the day before now. Now, the question is, that, is what is it the day before? What is this period that we're in, the middle of the war? It's the before what? 
uh, not what comes after the war. So for me, that's mm-hmm. the only way that a Palestinian should look at it, i.e. if this confluence between conditions on the ground, balance of forces, political Israel, military, strategic, whatever, regional, and, and Hamas Israel, is maintained where we are today, let's say, in a few weeks and a few, even a few months, even if it's been reduced, but there will be other factors that will come into the balance for and against Hamas. My my question is, therefore, um, if everybody's saying, well, we need a final, you know, permanent solution to this, uh, and the only permanent solution anybody agrees is the two-state solution, mm-hmm. even though myself and most of us have totally gone off the idea if we ever were keen on it because of what we see in front of us in the West Bank. So it became impossible. So why do we keep talking about it? Let's see what apartheid means and how we can get out of it. That was where we were on the 7th of October. Now, some people are still there. There's an interesting article I haven't yet read by Tariq Makone, who says precisely that, you know, whereas I published an article, which maybe some interpret as a call for a two-state solution, it wasn't so much that as saying that if you want a two-state solution, this is the sort of economic prerequisites that you have to. So if those prerequisites are available, yeah, I'll go for the two-state solution for sure. Um, in that sense, that that was what I was saying in that article. My point here is that in the day before, if we as Palestinians don't assume something like a state or a state, not something like a state, this time we assume a state has to be the outcome, the political outcome, even, God forbid, on the ruins of the resistance. Even if that's what happens to make a state, to make that outcome happen. But I personally don't believe that what we're hearing from the West in terms of we we're now serious this time and we're going to go through with it. Uh, but in order to go through it, they're telling us we have to destroy the resistance. I don't believe them. I believe that if they destroy the resistance, then they'll throw us into another Oslo. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like they did in 91. Why, why did we end up in Madrid? Do you remember why we ended up in Madrid? Because the Intifada had been uh, violently uh, repressed, but most importantly because the PLO had been ostracized for its position on Kuwait. And the PLO was spent a year or two before it was allowed anybody to talk to it, right? And it was therefore only allowed into the Madrid peace process. Why? Because it it, it had to be there. Everybody knew, but you remember it was represented by Palestinians from the inside. So my what I'm seeing, therefore, is that we're that we next the next process. There has to be a political process. I totally agree. There has to be a political good, you know, a mutual indeed, not a exclusive, not us or them uh, definitely not and to be honest i don't think even hamas is saying us or them i mean that's true it's in the charter and all that but if you read honey some of their statements on the two-state solution and part of this war uh if i mean anyhow we can talk about hamas's uh, its own changes that it's i'm sure going through and will have to go through if it's going to assume the political responsibility that it's claiming for itself through what it's done hmm. so I think there actually is a horizon for the two-state solution that we didn't have for the last 20 years. Uh, a political opening. I don't call it a horizon. It's an opening. Yeah, I was going to say, and you, and you mentioned that in the piece that you, uh, you, you just referred to, uh, in that you are thinking of a two-state, two-economy solution, and that might be the window to do that. And I, I just wanted to have you talk more about this concept and how we can bring this idea into discourse. Um, and especially, you know, I think uh, that piece was, was very significant, but I think what you are getting at in it is that 
you know, you need a nationalist development, liberationist framework for that kind of uh, economy to get back on its feet and also to sort of separate itself from dependency um, of the quote-unquote economic peace with Israel. Uh, when I first looked at this idea of economic peace, it was in 2009. It was when it was first floated by Netanyahu when he had came to power. And I examined it as just another iteration of basically Israeli economic policy towards, well, uh, what, what um, the argument there was that there is no economic policy per se. Israel doesn't care about the Palestinian economy so much, except to the extent that it's a tool in its own um, purposes, be it, mm -hmm. you know, economic or security or, or resources. So Oslo itself was a very... A sophisticated, the highest stage of economic peace, if you wish, because it assumed that we can achieve through the economy and build as part of a political process. Then since Netanyahu, it's been obviously separated and been basically sold as an alternative to, and we've had, as I said, different iterations of it since Netanyahu, and every Israeli government comes up with it. Mm -hmm. uh, even the, not this one, but the one just before it, the Bennett right-wing government was all about facilitation uh, measures as a way of managing the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And as we know, uh, Netanyahu bought big into that concept, and it, it's the, it's it's brought you know it's actually been the worst policy Israel could in terms of Hamas and Gaza, the one of the greatest gravest strategic errors Israel has ever made politically. Coming back to the question of uh, development state and and the Palestinian economy. Uh, and, and I mentioned it in the article that uh, the PLO has, ever, has always been pretty, you know, very true to the to what you read about its declaration. I mean, it's always worked vigorously for the two-state solution. Vigorously, I would say, since, the, since they were able to get a position in the 98-88 National Council of the Declaration of the Independence of the State. So that was all, that was the, you know, and that was something that all the Palestinians accepted in principle. But there were conditions that we assumed would have to be satisfied. And th those conditions were enunciated very clearly by the PLO in 1990, by a, a pioneering study done by Yusuf Sayyid for the PLO that talked about the economic prerequisites and muqawwamat of a Palestinian, independent Palestinian state. And of course, they were not, taken into account because of the political price that was paid by the PLO to get part become part of the peace process and by 94 no no more long you know never there was no longer Soviet Union there the Arab uh, consensus had had had, con, had con, congealed around the peace you know peace process and so basically that's what was on offer and what was on offer ended up being obviously not a state no sovereignty uh, hence, no sovereign economic functions, uh, border, you know, the whole customs envelope thing with uh, Paris Protocol with Israel, this assumption that you'd have a, a, a access to the labor markets, which, of course, Israel has played with, manipulated in, in, incessantly, and most recently after this war, and various other weaknesses, which were clear to all of us as economists in the 90s, and which were criticized, but we assumed that, you know, the final status uh, agreements, Camp David 2000, would resolve in a, a equitable economic relationship. That didn't happen. The second intifada happened. We got involved in a, in a, in a status of this is the Paris Protocol. We will, you know, the economic agreement between Israel and the PLO, we, the Israelis, will 
uh, apply what we want to apply and give you what we want to give you. We'll deduct what we need to think you have to deduct, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have no recourse to anybody to complain, except the, the Israeli military administration, civil administration next door. And so that was what we were locked into. But of our own making as well as of the world's making. Now, we've been saying it for 20 years, and I'll say it again, you know, and the, the prerequisites are well known. You need sovereignty over your natural resources. We need a minimal land mass area to do this bloody state in. Uh, we need contiguity. We need the people, you know, we need freedom of movement, international trade. We have we want to have our own uh, trade regime. We don't want necessarily Israel. We want to be a bit more protective to our infant industries. Uh, we do or we do not want to be linked to your monetary, you know, all of these decisions, which have been postponed for 30 years, if not, well, at least 30 years. So this is the moment or never. If there's going to be a two-state solution, it'll happen as a result of this war. If there's, if as a result of this war, the the the, the international community and the Arabs, well, the Arabs, I don't really count anymore in terms of their political weight in all of this. Uh, it counts really. It's down to the Israelis and the Palestinians, and the extent to which the Palestinians can can shift public opinion in in the United States and and in Europe, and that's happening. If Israel is able to quell, snuff out extinguish, expel resistance from around Palestine, which I think is a huge order, then maybe we'll just live into this sort of eternal one-state reality, you know, apartheid reality. However, I don't think that's the balance. I think I don't think the world would permit that, to be honest, any longer. And I think that there's going to be that shift. That sort of an outcome is no longer. So I think what we're looking for now in Palestine is what's going to happen next door. I mean, at what point will the demands they're making of the Palestinians regarding Hamas, that you cannot, you know, you have to renounce terrorism, you have to die, you have to... I mean, at what point are they going to make those sort of demands on the Israelis? And they do, and something changes there, then you could talk about um, a legitimate basis for a Palestinian... I mean, it's not this before that, but I think... Uh, uh, change is going to come in Palestine, and that change is going to include both... Uh, some sort of ending of this West Bank Gaza Strip political divide and the Hamas PLO or exclusion from the PLO, some sort of international um, reaffirmation of support in the PA, at least once it's more legitimate and representative of of all the Palestinians, uh, because it's a, a useful mechanism for everybody. Uh, I think there might even be international, we might move now to see some serious international recognition of the state of Palestine, uh, even in the UN. But if not in the UN, then certainly from already we know Europe, it's that's going to happen. And the, the, I mean, it's a demand that the PLO is putting to the Americans as well. So those sort of things will help change the mood in, in after the war and would reflect a certain change of the balance of powers. But I think ultimately, you know, how big the destruction and the reconstruction requirements will be, as well as whether there will be a political basis for any reconstruction, depends on what's going to happen militarily, and that is something out of our hands. Mm -hmm. Th thank you for this answer. It was, uh, it was uh, a lot to, you know, unpack. But I do believe the narrative is changing, whether it happens due to outside pressure or from within Israel itself. Um, but yeah, until the dust settles um, and, you know, the guns go silent, we're, we're not going to be able There's to find out. There's certain things it's not worth talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah exactly. the moment, which which brings me to my next question, which uh, totally 
contradicts what I just said, but uh, I know it's really unfathomable to uh, talk about reconstruction at this point. But, you know, as a dev development uh, economist, what would you say is a good starting point to start rebuilding Gaza's economy? Just, you know, if you were to do one thing, the first thing, what would it be? The economy, I mean, rebuilding Gaza or rebuilding Gaza's economy? Obviously, the two are related, but I mean, you know, the rebuilding of Gaza or the building of Gaza, I think uh, a new Gaza is going to have to be conceived. Look, there are three phases, at least. There's the relief phase, which we haven't even begun. And that includes shelter. And that hasn't even begun. There are people working there and they're starting to think about different ways. Talking about 500,000 at least refugees for the uh, internally displaced people for the next six months at least. So there's that that has to be. That's the only thing that, I mean, not the only thing, but for the moment, that's the thing that has to be, everybody has to be working on. Plus, of course, all the, the, the flow of aid uh, on a daily basis and, and fuel and, and whatever. Then you have the, assuming there's no hostility, you have the, re the reconnection of, of the basic utilities, but that's going to only provide you with certain amount of places where there'll be electricity. But how, even if you open the, even if you fix the electrical, Israel is not going to be supplying electricity to Gaza. So is Egypt ready to, I don't know about that uh could the you know we know that the power station anyhow there are all sorts of huge infrastructure economic infrastructure issues which i'm not i'm sure the you know telecoms people and the water people are already thinking about making plans for what they would do once they can start repairing those are you know those are the, the those will be the sole preoccupation of the next six months uh, and getting commercial markets running again i don't think industry or agriculture you can do anything about for at least until we, Israel is totally withdrawn and you can use agricultural land again. So all of the available agricultural land has currently been churned under Israeli tanks and, and, and you know, 500 factories, if not more, have been put out of commission, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the economy itself is a second, is a third. So uh, relief and shelter, uh, basic food and medical supplies, um, removing the rubble. Just removing the rubber and where do you go with it? You throw it in the sea, you truck it into Egypt. What do you do? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no that, one's thought about that, then, actually. And then, <laughs> but that's a major issue. Yeah. That'll take ton, tons of time. I mean, that'll require the sort of equipment that we don't have and so on. So there, all of these immediate tasks, we're talking about six to 12 months of only that. And then the economy will start organically, of course, reconnecting and certain whoever can get if you have free commercial passage on the commercial passages, then, you know, a supplier, then people will order supplies and start their factories again. And bit by bit, things will start moving. But I assume the economy is decommissioned for the year. At best, you're going to need to supplement what, what used to be a 2.5 billion GDP with at least, you know, double that to keep people alive. Mm -hmm. At least double that, because people were living, you know, at their, at the, you know, and when people ask again, what, uh, how, how long would it take, or what would it take to get Gaza back to where it was on the eve of the war? That is a totally unacceptable goal for us. Uh, where it was on the, uh, at the on the eve of the war was that it had been reduced from thirty-five to seventeen percent of the national economy. But that no, uh, uh, it's uh, PC per capita. Income was down to $1,500 GDP a day, uh, a year per, per capita. Various other indicators, the highest poverty rates, of course, in, uh, compared to the West Bank, the highest unemployment rate. So that is not an unacceptable baseline okay. to be. So we need to go back to where we were 15 years ago. Hmm. Hmm. 
where the those gaps with the West Bank were less, where people were anyhow, where people were better employed, where uh, and that is, you know, requires something out of the box. And that's why we're talking about things like UBI or universal basic in, emergency basic income. I mean, as a scheme, as a way of, of pumping an aggregate demand quickly into the whole throughout to the whole society. It's why you need to think about very um, well, politically for the moment and security, perhaps unacceptable uh, solutions like uh, a floating port or a, uh, you know, mm. uh, maritime facilities that you can bring in directly bring in a lot of these things that you're going to need the idea of Rafah uh, being the only access point to Gaza in itself if that even if there is no war it's impossible to to manage what we've just talked about through Rafah but the Israelis are refusing to use the West Bank you know for stuff to come through Jordan via is West Bank of Israel so there's so so many I mean as an economist I there's no use for me there's nothing an economist can do right now except talk about, you know, some big ideas and try to get things, you know, keep people uh, focused properly. But you need bill, uh, you need just a huge civil defense army, basically, for the next year. Until that happens, one can only hope. Thank you for listening to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza. And to my guest, Raja Khalidi. This episode was produced by myself and the Cairo Review's Deputy Senior Editor, Omar Auf. Let us know what you thought of this episode and share your feedback with us on social media. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Salam. <laughs>